This podcast is brought to you by the Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation. Are you looking to support your memory and optimize your quality of life? Develop a healthy brain for brighter days at PNI's Lifestyle Program, available virtually and in person. Reserve your spot today. Visit PacificLifestyle.org to learn more. The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Tatiana Sarkeesian lives with a brain tumor that causes pain like the very worst migraine. Vanessa Manlunas had a sarcoma in her cheekbone and has had eight surgeries. Ben Stein Labovitz suffered an inoperable brainstem glioma that is kept in check with a new drug. Do you have someone in your life who is coping with cancer? Tatiana, Vanessa, and Ben have some thoughts on how to help them. For Ben, the best thing was when a friend just left dinner on the porch and didn't even ring the doorbell because he had a baby at the time and a barking dog. Tatiana likes it when friends check in, not with her, but with her mother, who is in it with her every day. Dr. Akanksha Sharma, a neuro-oncologist at Pacific Neuroscience Institute who has helped hundreds of patients on their cancer journeys, helps moderate this discussion on what helps and what doesn't when someone is facing the toughest diagnoses. I'm Akanksha Sharma. I'm a neuro-oncologist and palliative care specialist at Pacific Neuroscience Institute in Providence St. John's Health Center. It's a privilege for me to take care of uh, many uh, amazing and incredible patients. And we are joined today by three of our patients. Uh, We'll be talking today about the challenges that our patients experience when they're given a new diagnosis of cancer. And we'll focus on um, how these some of the things that that are said to our patients that don't work and some of them that do work. So we'll hear their perspective um, as they especially as they started navigating the journey of cancer um, early on in their course. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, why don't we go around and ask each of um, our guests to introduce him or herself and tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on. Um, Tatiana, would you like to start? Hi. Uh, My name is Tatiana Sarkeesian, and I am a brain cancer patient. I was diagnosed about nine years ago with an anaplastic astrocytoma, grade three tumor, and um, I live in Los Angeles right now. Van? Hi, my name is Vanessa Manlunas, and I'm in Los Angeles, California, and I was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, which is a bone cancer, but Uh, I had a tumor that took up my left sinus and then grew up and behind my left eye and right outside of my brain when we caught it. So um, it has, I was diagnosed May 10th of 2021 and I am still in my process um, of, I had to do chemo, radiation and a lot of surgery. And to re- and they removed my whole left cheekbone and regrafted it with new bone and tissue from my body, and still on the journey of reconstruction. And Ben, hi, uh, my name is Ben Stanislavovitz. <clears throat> I was diagnosed. Uh, I'm coming up at the end of this month. Uh, it'll be five years uh, with a brainstem glioma. Um, that's all we kind of know about it because it's inoperable and the brainstem is kind of a no-fly zone. Uh, I walked into a wall at work and it's all kind of gone from there. I went through a year of chemo, radiation, and I've been on a clinical trial with Dr. Sharma for about three years now. Well, I started in Seattle and now I'm in LA. Uh, Yeah. Well, let's start there. When you say the brainstem is a no-go zone, what do you mean? So my very first appointment was with Dr. Berger at UCSF. 
Uh, and he's a uh, neurosurgeon, highly regarded. Uh, and he basically explained to me that within brain surgeries, you know, sometimes they can nick something here or there. There's some blood here or there. Uh, but <clears throat> with the brainstem, that's pretty much instant death. Uh, so they basically don't touch it because the brainstem is responsible for basic life functions, swallowing, heartbeat, uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, so I haven't had surgery, um, which is a blessing and a curse. So that leaves um, chemo and radiation. That was the idea was to, to keep it at bay uh, with chemo and radiation. And then hopefully science picked up and, uh, and that's where I'm at now with uh, Onc 201 with Dr. Sharma. That's the, uh, clinical trial that I'm on. So Ben's on a on a on a drug that was um, just discovered in the last um, decade or so um, that is specific to a type of tumor that um, that Ben has, which is a H3K27M midline glioma is the technical term for that. But it's basically a tumor that's in the brainstem or very deep in the brain where you cannot operate on it or remove it successfully through surgery. Um, it also tends to behave very aggressively. Um, but um, Ben was one of the earlier patients on clinical trials with this drug, um, and he has had, fortunately, a very good response. Um, and it's an oral drug that he um, that he takes that um, has so far, um, fortunately, kept his tumor under control. And what is how does the drug work? So onc one is uh, a, a dopamine, dopamine receptor antagonist. So uh, we're still learning about exactly how this drug works. It was start. It was sort of identified in a trial for recurrent glioblastoma, um, which is a stage four um, cancer. Uh, that can occur in different parts of the brain, um, they realized that a small percentage of these patients were re responding to the drug, and then they looked further into what the mutation was, and that's how they found out how it that, that this might work for this drug. Um, what we think it does is that it basically uh, affects the powerhouse of the cell, uh, which is the mitochondria, mm -hmm. and reduces the energy component of the cell so that it, the actively dividing cells with this mutation will stop growing. Um, they'll <clears throat> they'll essentially be handicapped and not be able to continue growing as rapidly as they were before. And did you say it's a dopamine antagonist? Yes. So what is dopamine? What is is what does that have to do with the cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. And so that's why part of uh, what we're learning is how does this uh, work with tumor growth? And what we're learning is that um, the dopamine receptor D2, which is where this drug works, can um, is, is responsible for the pathway of the energy cycle. So the cell um, feeds on energy from mitochondria and the dopamine receptor is in that pathway. And so stopping um, or antagonizing that receptor can slow down the growth of the tumor. Okay. All right. It seems like dopamine is involved in everything these days. Um, yes. Now, Tatiana, we've had you on before. Tell us tell us where you are in your journey. Yeah. Um, I think I, I told you guys it's, it's been uh, nine years. And when we left off, I think it was after I finished the treatment and things were kind of up in the air, um, not looking the best or yeah, we were watching it. And ever since I actually had my second round of brain radiation, um, instead of the six week process I did nine years ago, um, this was a shorter five day um, cycle. And I've kind of been dealing with, everything since then, um, the, the radiation inflames your brain. Um, and I was dealing with uh, a lot of pain that brought on. And so I went to uh, the hospital a couple of times and um, we got myself on steroids, which was great for the pain and, and inflammation. But then as I was coming off of it, it was, uh, causing a lot of pain and um, it was a little difficult to wean off of that. Um, and then Dr. Sharma helped um, to uh, give some medication and uh, keep it at bay of just like monitoring that pain. And 
decreasing that swelling. Um, so it was. Is the, is the pain? Is it like headache pain? Is it? Is that? It's like ten times worse. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So like a super migraine. It's super, super, super migraine. Oh. And it's all just it's it's everywhere in kind of in your head. Yeah, because I I tolerate pain pretty. Well, I hate pain. Nobody likes it, but I, mm. I have tolerated it. And then this was the first time I, I said I need to go to the emergency because um, it was just, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And, and, and so, and what ended up helping the steroid plus? The steroid and um, Dr. Sharma to say the, can say the drugs. <laughs> okay. What were the drugs? She needed to be on a drug that's anti-inflammatory called bevacizumab, which is also known as Avastin. It's a monoclonal antibody. So it's a, um, a, a drug that's been developed to affect the blood vessels of uh, cancer cells, but it also has a benefit in reducing um, radiation-related inflammation, which is what um, Tatiana was going through. And so it can um, reduce the inflammation that's caused by radiation in a particular area and help us wean steroids um, because steroids are really helpful in the short term, but in the long term, they can cause a lot of toxicity like weight issues, skin issues, uh, swelling, diabetes, blood pressure problems. Um, so we're always trying to balance the risk versus benefit of that. And sometimes we have to use other agents to help um, uh, with coming off steroids. Mm, mm. Okay. And Van, where are you now? Dr. Sharma and St. John successfully got my tumor to shrink down away from my brain, um, which was, I couldn't, we couldn't operate because it was like right at my brain. So there was no safe margin. So we did a year and a half of chemo, um, aggressive chemo, I guess it's called blasted in that terms, um, where they just give me everything they got. And then I, they removed my tumor and the bone that was compromised. And then I did radiation. Um, and now I'm at the point where they're reconstructing. Mm. And, yeah, and then I do my next PET scan and MRI next month, I believe. So Just to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and what is that? What was the reconstruction like? Is that, you know, who does that? Is that done at PNI as well? Yeah, actually, it was everything was done in house at PNI. It was Dr. Walgama, Dr. Kochar, Dr. Krauss, Dr. Griffith. Uh, it was a 13 hour surgery with five different surgeons. Yeah, so I had one main doctor remove the tumor, the shrunken tumor. I had Dr. Kochar completely take the bone out and then take bone from my bottom left leg, reconstruct it, and then apply it, and then take tissue from my left leg, put tissue back on there. Um, and I think he was assisted with, or oversaw that with Dr. Griffith. And then Dr. Krauss was the one who kept my eye integrity in place. So it was a tag team of 13 hours of surgery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I know all of them. They're they're yeah, all they're great. Amazing. They're great. Yeah, uh, they did a great job. Thank you. Yeah, when um when I got out, it was six days of intensive surgery, and I looked like a combination of um getting hit by a bus and like the a gingerbread man cookie because I was bald at that time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. My and my friends and I would jokingly compare it of um if you ever look at puppies that ate bees and they're so swollen that's <laughs> wow well you look great now um yeah this is eight surgeries and two more to go so yeah i just had eye surgery a week ago to finally get an eyelid i haven't had a left eyelid for a year so so they took skin and cartilage from my left ear put it on my eyelid so how did you manage without an eyelid for that long? I'm, you know, not having an eyelid wasn't worse than the radiation and the chemo feeling and mm. all that. Um, yeah, you know, what, I, I think when you're in treatment, there is just so much that you're going through that it kind of it becomes a little overwhelming that there's not one thing that's... Yeah 
painful or annoying. It's just become this overall complex. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and that's where Dr. Sharma comes in. <laughs> yeah. 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 My team. Yeah. And the team. Um, Dr. Sharma and I were talking about some of the language that's changed around cancer. We don't talk about the fight or the battle. Is that what you were saying to me? We try not to. And I think that's some of the, I, I'd be curious to hear from some of you what, as you were, as you look back at your first diagnosis, you know, five years ago, nine years ago, two years ago, what were some of the things that people said to you that, that was helpful or not helpful? Um, I guess not helpful would be key. Cause I think, People don't realize that, and some of that is this language around fighting, or you can beat this, or and 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 I've increasingly been told by other patient advocates that that's not helpful any. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Maybe Ben, do you want to start? For me, it wasn't any particular language, um, but it was just what. I didn't like the most in terms of like things not to do or say or whatever was uh, people kind of not showing up or being like afraid to talk to me. Um, And therefore they wouldn't say anything to me. And that would often hurt more than them because there is no necessarily wrong thing to say. I mean, and a lot of people, in terms of things that helped that I liked, on the flip side of that is people who would just show up, just sit with me, you know, play music or whatever, just, you know, uh, and I had lots of family members just come to help my wife, who was my caregiver. Uh, so for me, it was just kind of showing up and being present. Um, it wasn't necessarily using any language at all, because I think a lot of the time there is nothing to say. There's no right thing to say. So it's just being there. Yeah. Ben, can I ask, I should, I'll ask all of you, but Ben, what do you do for a living? I'm a full-time dad. So that's, you're, you're around and you're. I was a computer programmer. Uh, and uh, obviously my <laughs> cognitive abilities have uh, <laughs> weakened. So mm. I, I, uh, Luckily, my employer had a disability policy, and so that's, you know, my income for right now, Uh, but uh, my wife and I, uh, so one of the first things that was said to me that might be helpful to viewers uh, was that I, I froze sperm before I started chemo, and that's what we used to have our first child three years ago. Uh, and yeah, and we had uh, another child a year ago. Uh, so that's fantastic. That's, my, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's keep going. Tatiana, what about, what about you? What's helpful and not helpful? Um, I was actually going to say something very similar to that because people are afraid to reproach you, um, Maybe because they don't want to say the wrong thing. Maybe because they don't want to deal with it. And I think that's valid also because it's hard. It's hard to just show up for this illness. And I don't know. I, I feel like that like life is hard in general. Um, but I, I think there is still a balance of going through your hard thing and showing up for somebody else and not complaining. I mean, if they mean something to you, right? Um, and then things like, like, like after surgery, someone said, like, can't wait to see you on the other side. Um, and I was like, what side? Like, what, why, why would you say that to me, you know? Um, or, or being told that you're strong is not always helpful. Um, I wish I could receive it as much as I am I'm being told it, but I don't always, I don't know if it's, I don't always feel it or if it's just been said so much that um, I don't know how to process it. Like how does me being strong show up in my daily life? And maybe that's it. It's the fact that I keep showing up that 
makes you strong. I think I wish there was a different word for it, maybe. Hmm. So that gets at that idea that maybe the fight and the battle are, those are not the right terms here, maybe. No, because like maybe when you're actively in treatment, that's what's depicted as the fight. But really, once you're diagnosed, it it doesn't stop after treatment. And I think that's what needs to be highlighted more. Um, mm. I'm not saying it sucks all the time or because uh, you could still live a beautiful life after this or during even this diagnosis. Um, it's just the way it's said, they want to like ignore the pain of it. Mm. Yeah. And gloss over it with those terms, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Van, what about you? Same, same question. Yeah. I, that's a loaded answer. I have to um, coming off of what Ben and Tatiana was saying. Um, I, I just want to um, start off with, um, I, I haven't really publicly been telling people what's, been going on with me. Um, a lot of it is because how it was received by the people and what feedback I got when I first realized that I was diagnosed. I got, I got a lot of really weird um, reception from people. Like, and and a lot of it is because it's shocking, right? Your diagnosis is a shocking thing for everybody. So for you specifically, for your family, and for your your community, right? So when I had first, I leaked out information to trusted people first who I knew how to take care of the information. But knowing after a while that this is gonna be a longer serious process, um, meaning treatment was gonna be longer and serious, I'm gonna have to watch this for the rest of my life. But I had people say stuff like, oh, I, I know somebody who had cancer in the face and, and, and they died. I'm like, that says you don't, why would you say stuff like that? You know, or I also had people who had, and I know every cancer patient goes through this, but they had opinion on how I should get treated. Like someone said, oh, you shouldn't do chemo because you'll lose your hair. And I'm like, (laughs) it's stuff like that. And, and, And then to having even the language when you're going through it, Um, When I'm actively in treatment, what I hated the most is when people would say um, things happen for a reason or you're you're so strong, like like Tatiana was saying, or they'd say next year's your year. I can't wait to see you, you know, as if like. I don't know if next year is going to be, you know, uh, just saying things that really felt like my feelings in the moment were not validated. Mm-hmm. It almost feels as if, and I'm sure people don't realize this, but when people say things like what Tatiana said, see you on the next side or next year is your year or you're super strong and like things happen for a reason. It feels like it's something you could just throw away and say really easily. And then when I'm not in your presence, it's like everything is fine, but it's not fine necessarily. I'm constantly in this world of confusion, physical pain, emotional, mental battle, like this, all this stuff. And it's it's not something that... Um, I am very aware that it's because people don't know how to approach you or talk to you or, or what to say. And and maybe that's the best that they could say in the moment. But when you get a lot of it, I think as a patient, it just makes me feel very like not seen of what I'm going through. From an outside perspective, I see that they see I'm going through something, but it it doesn't feel like my space is um, taken account of, if that makes sense. Because we do, we do battle every day. It is more than we can explain, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And and then I also had 
this is a hard one. When I was first diagnosed, the amount of people who, because they were scared for me, would jump at me and say, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And, and, and with that, this is a most important thing that I wanted to mention is that for people like me, who, when I was diagnosed, I'm not just thinking about myself. I'm thinking about my boyfriend. I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my nephew. So there's a lot of weight that I'm carry when I think about what's happening to me and what's going to happen to me. So when I get this, I'm like starting to get, um, my throat starting to close up because I'm remembering what it felt like. But when I get so much information thrown at me on top of what I'm internally dealing with, it makes it really hard for someone to continue because it's like I'm trying to figure out what to do and and then there's more people and more stress and more things coming at me so um so and then i also had so with that i was kind of told to go get a second opinion i was at st john's when they first saw my tumor and i was like really pressured really pressured to go see another doctor at another big name hospital i'm not gonna say but it's a really famous one Mm. Work. Um, and I went in there and it was because my diagnosis was so rare or not um, common, it was really hard to see a specialist. And when I finally got in to see the specialist, he sat me down and he just started talking to me like statistics and everything. And I remember I was just so overwhelmed that I started crying. Um, and my friend was with me and I remember, and she, she, I, and the doctor literally says, looked at his watch and he's like, oh, that's a record for me. Someone to cry in the first five minutes. And I was like, what? Um, and my friend had to put him in his place. It was really funny. So, yeah. So there's, there's a lot. There's oh more. my gosh. Yeah. And I'm sure Tatiana and Ben have gone through many nuanced feelings of that. So. Yeah, does so does any of that resonate or bring up any thoughts for you, Ben or Tatiana? Does that sound familiar? One thing that jumped out at me was when people say you're strong or whatever, I'm like, cool. Cancer doesn't give a shit if you're strong. <laughs> like, like I still have this tumor in my brain. Like it doesn't care how my mental fortitude is good or whatever. So uh yeah, I think there's a for me, there's a now that I'm five years post diagnosis, there's a lot of things that were said in the beginning that were really hard that now looking back is a little bit easier to digest. Uh, <clears throat> namely, uh, you know, when people would show up or whatever, sometimes they start talking about their own medical stuff. <laughs> and that is not helpful. Uh, in the beginning, whereas now I have more empathy and can relate to people more and, you know, you know, I help in whatever way I can. But, um, yeah. That's... And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org slash foundation. Tatiana, and I meant to um, ask before, you're, if I remember correctly, you're an, archi- you're an architect, right? You work as an architect? Yeah. Yeah. And and does any of this sound familiar, um, what Ben and Van are saying? Yeah. Um... Definitely, I think when it's a doctor that's not saying things as empathetically as you wish, it it hurts. And I'm I'm cur- I'm trying to think if it hurts more than a friend. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Um, I have to think about that more. But maybe you guys have a an opinion about that. Um, I I think it's also the tone. I think that's what I wanted to add because I've 
been told by some people who I respect, who have no idea what I'm going through, but it, they empathize with it. They're able to empathize with it and the tone in which they're talking or just typing. It's not always um, speaking. It's the construction of their words that matter and that make a difference versus somebody else could be saying the same thing, but it comes off differently. And I recognize that makes it harder for someone to think if they're saying the right thing or not, or if it's going to connect or not. But I, I think it's a, a human thing. Um, it's like what kind of being you are. And if you're able to put that mental effort into hearing someone, even when they're not saying something. And that's hard. A lot of people's brains right now are in like panic mode. And I mean, there's a lot going on. And they can't carve out that space to like just be and hear others, even when they're not saying something. So mm. um, the tone really matters for me. And, and I've been told harsh things, not mean things, but things that didn't sound right or didn't make me like particularly happy, but it connected still and I appreciated it still. So in that sense, it's like, I don't want people to be scared of me. Um, it's just figuring, I don't know, it's, it's person by person how something comes off. Mm. Mm. And I realize that makes it difficult to understand where you're at versus like compared to, um, or in like, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. Hold mm. on. No, I get it. Um, no, I think what you said was was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think all of you are saying one of the things that's if I had to summarize is that just it's just being there is important, even if you're not saying a lot. And sometimes saying a lot or saying too much can be worse or giving too many suggestions or directions or overwhelming somebody with so much information when they're also already trying to process things. Um, and, you know, sometimes silence is worth a lot, even though it's extremely uncomfortable. And I think not just from Van's story and from, um, from I know with my experience too, it has something I've had to learn is to be quiet because um, it's better for me sometimes to be quiet in the moment, um, especially with a new diagnosis, with stressful information rather than say the wrong thing. I think with friends, not so much doctors, but with friends and family, it's like when you want to, unload on them or um, just complain about something or, you know, everyone, toxic posi positivity is also something that's not helpful. Um, and also with friends or, or family, sometimes we just want to, what like I was saying, unload. And I think it's okay for others to ask, do you want feedback on that? Or do you want to just complain and take this time to to just talk about your feelings without needing advice per se and so that's also something my friend and I have learned to do um, just to like protect, protect that space and honor wherever you're at mm. Mm. then were you in a um, an office situation when you got your diagnosis yeah Dan, what about you? Were you? I, I work. I used to work in the film industry um, behind the camera, um, which is funny because now I can't see. Um, and what happened was I went to Pacific Neuro Institute um, because I had pain in my cheek and I couldn't breathe. Um, and there was a bump here that was tender. So I went in and I saw one of their doctors and we we both thought it was a severe sinus infection. So I was on put on 10 days of antibiotics and five days of steroids. And um, on the sixth day when the steroids were done, I was supposed to drive to San Diego for work. So I woke up and it was super tender. So I called the doctor back and I literally said, can I get more steroids so I could go to work? <laughs> mm. um, and then he's like why don't you come in and check it out and this this is why I love 
P&I because they, they're really thorough in their work. And when I came in and he touched my cheek, <clears throat> uh, no, we're going to do a CT scan instead. Mm. So then we did a CT scan and we found the tumor. But I was on, I was on the way to work. So. Mm. Yeah, I just wonder how that, you know, that's uh, balancing life and work is already so hard. And then you throw this in. Oh, which is which brings up something too. It's so funny Um, in terms of how people react when you first tell them. So because it's a, an oh, awkward place to get a tum tumor, I guess. I don't know. Um, When I would tell people, the first question they would ask was, Oh, how did you figure that out? Which, you know, now looking back, I understand that they say that because they're concerned for themselves. But it came before even, how are you doing? It was like the very mm. question. So that's another thing too. Um, but I guess when you're newly diagnosed and it's a shock to your community, I don't mm. think there's any way of protecting yourself from a shocking reaction from other people. So, yeah. Who, who in your life got it right? My close, very close group of friends, my, um, and, and I want to say that we've had my close group of friends and I, like Tatiana was saying, we've already have established a really intimate, safe place of connection and space. So when I first got diagnosed, there was only a handful of people that I called. And then when I did call, they didn't say anything at all. They just held the space for me. So I actually, th they were the ones who knew for about two weeks. Uh, and then I started telling everybody else. But so for like the first two weeks, I was in um, chaos, but in I had a space that was held. So when I was told family and people beyond that, that it got kind of crazy. Mm. Mm. What about you, Ben? So when I was in my 20s, uh, my father actually passed away from a neurodegenerative disease. So I was kind of hypersensitive to it. Uh, so when I started having some issues, I talked to my father-in-law, who's a family doctor. And he was like, go see a neurologist. And uh, I saw a neurologist and they did the normal tests that they all do. And she goes, you're fine. Hmm. And hmm. I demanded an MRI. And it kind of went from there. Um, and I've, I've been very vocal uh, about everything. Um but you know, I, I I asked obviously I asked every doctor I've seen, uh, am I connected to my father? Like, am I gonna pass this down to my children? It's mm -hmm. obviously a worry of mine. And they all said, you know, no, it's not connected. Um, but my radiologist, um, I liked his answer and he was the only doctor that basically left the door open for it he, and he kind of said that there's no connection scientifically that we know of right now but that doesn't mean we will find something in the future moreover on a spiritual level um, because i've always felt it's cosmically karmically whatever you want to call it aligned tatiana same same question who who got it right there's some specific friends and family that definitely got it right there's even some distant friends that don't know the specifics of like my day-to-day -day, but when when they show up they definitely know how um so i appreciate both of those the, the close ones and the the ones that aren't around so often but still know how to show up so what would you say to somebody who would say you know how how can we be there for you in the beginning um, or anytime when you're going through these day-to-day -day difficulties? Like sometimes when they ask, do you need anything? You don't always know the answer. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not fair. Again, it's 
you can't, they're not mind readers. Um, but it's also sometimes uh, just doing things for you that aren't necessarily something they would do in general. Like, like where I'm at right now, I get a lot of help in just like house chores or like um, returning an Amazon item. So like, but they're around for me to ask versus me texting them and asking. Yeah. So just like being there physically than some of the other ones. So being present, again, going back to being present and being available. And Ben, ben what would you say? Something that was really helpful or whatever was they were they would talk to my wife, who was my caregiver, who could act as kind of that buffer. Um, and food. <laughs> and moreover, I specifically remember, you know, my wife set up a meal train or whatever. And again, people would say, oh, what do you want? And then the onus is on you to figure out and you don't have the brain space or whatever. But one person just dropped off a meal and just left it on my doorstep. And they didn't even ring the doorbell, which I loved <laughs> because um, I had a baby <laughs> and a, a barking dog. So um, yeah, just just providing, but, but allowing me to take it on my own time um, was really meaningful. Mm. And what about you, Van? Uh, in my experience, because I'm someone who internalizes a lot of things, um, meaning I check in with myself before I do something. Um, I was someone who needed a lot of space. So it was it was nice that a lot of people were asking what they can do, but at one point it was overwhelming. And I think that... Um, people should know that just because they ask me if I need anything and I respond with nothing I needed, it it doesn't mean anything less on them. It just, you know, and, and I think people feel like they haven't helped if I don't ask for help. But what I see now more clear is that just having space for me really helps me. And if I don't react to um, a question or give them an answer to how to help. It um, it probably just means that I just need time. But to know that you're there and I could reach out when I need is incredibly important to me. Um, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Completely. Sometimes just a text asking how you're doing. Or thinking, not even asking how you're doing, but saying thinking of you. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. I mean, a lot. I wanted to add checking in on your caretaker, which, Ben, you just did a little, but um, for me, it's my mom. And she and I have gone through this a lot. And I don't always know, like, how I can help her, or I try to as much as I can. But if anyone, if anyone doesn't want to directly check in with me and they can just check on her, that would make like me the happiest, I think, because I worry about her a lot and I know I can't always show up the way I'd love to. Same way with friends and other family, but um, my mom specifically, because I, I know she's in it with me like every day. And um, so one last thing I would like to ask is how has this changed your spirituality and your sort of view of the universe? Is that, if that's not too broad and what have you found out there that is useful in that space? I read something today that it was an interview with Lily Reinhardt and I actually just read it or listen to it. And she was saying how like in the, like we're blimps in this whole universe, right? Or your life is a blimp. I'm going to butcher the quote. Um, but if I get this small part to live 
and experience the good, the bad, this like process of life. Like if I was chosen to do that, then like that's a beautiful experience to have. And for me, um, I'm more, I'm more of a spiritual person and to look at it like that, to be someone who was lucky enough to experience this. Um, I don't want to be toxic positive, but uh, I think that's, that's special. I don't have all the answers of like why things happened the way they did. So I, I try not to think about why this has happened to me. I just try to appreciate the process and, and the journey. That's also very, I don't like that word journey, but anyway, <laughs> um, it's like, what can you do with it now that it happened? Cause you can't change it. When I was first diagnosed at age 23, I didn't have that same perspective. I was very much in the why me um, mindset and it took a lot of time to get to this point of appreciating just what I've gone through and what will come still. Ben or Van, any thoughts on that? I remember when someone said to me, you know, remember the expression is life is short, right? But life is actually pretty long. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just try and live every minute and having children really changed my perspective more than being diagnosed in that sense um you know because i have cancer if, if i go early like i get the easy way out you know they they have to live with it so that's that's my drive in life and um, i'm not particularly a spiritual person um but uh, that energy is more powerful than anything. Van, anything? Yeah, so much. It's been um, so funny. They, It's such a cliche thing to hear, but um, in the very beginning, people would say, like, um, you know, once you find out you have cancer, you find all the other cancers in your life. You know, not necessarily the diagnosis, but I am I'm going to say it's like the double edged sword, right? Like I am a way better person to myself for myself because of having to go through this. And I mean that in the way where I came from this toxic work life of like hustle culture where it's like work, work, work. Um especially in the film industry where you basically give yourself to the film industry and you kind of lose yourself to it, to, you know, your time, your, your um, personality, just your identity. It's, it becomes part of the work world, you know? And I don't think I've ever had time to just focus on how I feel um granted it was necessary to do that but and I started to realize like uh what's important is like going for, forward now it's like I really don't care to do the things or chase the things that I used to or the reasons I used to if that makes sense like sure. really just care about if I can doing work that actually makes people feel an authentic thing or with friends and family it's like I don't care what you're doing how do you feel like what's going on right now like what's important in your life and like I think I have never been living truly moment to moment and I have always tried to be that through like meditation through like therapies through all these things but I just feel like I had boot camp on that. So <laughs> I feel like I've had 10 years of therapy in the two years of treatment, if that makes sense. So I think to me, what's more important in life is how I feel and that I express it to people that my friends and community know that I care 
and that I'm always going to push them to do things that are really important to them or ask them what's important to them and like why. And, you know, I, I just feel, I just feel like I care about people's well-being more um, because I'm more aware of how precious everyone's life is, if that makes sense. Mm, completely. Yeah. Um, well, this is great. Um, Wait, can I add one more thing that just came please. top of my mind? One thing that people, and this is a little off topic, but people always would press on me in the beginning was, you should meditate, you should meditate, you should really, for my, and I don't meditate. I have a really hard time with it. And it would just make me like it infuriate me. And one, one really helpful thing that somebody said to me that helped me balance that was I saw a holistic practitioner and they said, your, your, your journey or whatever you want to call it is like a bicycle spoke. And there's all these, you know, lots of spokes and you're going to fill it in with whatever is meaningful to you whether that's meditation or swimming or walking or playing or music or whatever. And, you know, if meditation is one of those spokes, awesome. So be it. Um, but not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear those conversations. <laughs> um, you know, one of the th thinking about this, um, I had some health issues a while back and, um, a, a friend of mine who had lost a sister-in-law to brain cancer, um, and has been through some, a lot of stuff himself said, he said something that I found very comforting and it was oddly it's strange that I find it comforting, but it was, we're all on thin ice. We're all on thin ice. And for some reason that comforts me, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I, in a weird way. So Anyway, I just share that as a coda to this fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Really um, can't thank you enough. Uh, and I hope we can do it again. And I've learned a lot. And I think everybody who listens to this will too. And I think I think people will find it to help. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so open and so vulnerable and um, willing to share such intimate parts of your journey. Um, you know, I think that when, when I see new patients or even patients who have been on this journey and they're struggling with some of the things that you guys have talked about, it just, I, I am so thankful that that um, you were willing to share some of the things that work, that didn't work, and um, that will be helpful for others. So thank you so much. Appreciate the space. Thank yeah. You. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.